0: Welcome. Uh, Thank you all for attending this uh, fourth and final event uh, in this year's series, Alternative Training on Prevent in Healthcare by MEDACT, organized by our Securitization of Health Group. My name is Rami, my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm a GP in East London and one of the founding members of the Securitization of Health Group. If we could uh, move the slides on. So just a brief introduction about MEDACT. For those of you who may not be familiar with the organization, um, MEDACT uh, works with uh, uh, health workers to do research and evidence-based campaigning, challenging the root causes of global and public health inequalities. They work on a range of issues including climate breakdown, uh, peace and security, economic justice and migration. More recently, Medact have been exploring uh, this issue of securitization of health uh, with a particular focus on counter extremism and the Prevent program, and looking at policies within and supported by uh, policing. Sorry, looking at policing within and supported by healthcare services. Uh, slide, so last year, uh, Medact uh, published false positives. Um, the Prevent Counter-Extremism Policy in Healthcare report detailing the implementation and impacts of Prevent uh, in the NHS, including analysis uh, from information obtained through freedom of information requests, focus groups, and interviews with health workers. And the presentation that we'll be giving shortly is largely drawn from that particular report. Uh, and then we have a second report that was published earlier this year, a follow-on, uh, follow-up report, Racism, uh, mental health and pre crime policing, the ethics of vulnerability support hubs. Um, after they were uh, able to uncover significantly more information on the secretive counter terror police led mental health project that is uh, support hubs. And more recently, MEDAC has been working with civil society colleagues and allies to challenge uh, the serious uh, violence duty being introduced within the government's controversial policing bill that some of you may be familiar with. This duty gives the police additional powers to be able to demand patient information from NHS uh, healthcare providers if they suspect someone of being involved in or at risk of becoming involved in what they deem to be serious violence. So we're seeing um, the continued expansion of of pre-crime policing into healthcare and other public services with the complicity of healthcare workers in surveillance. So it's crucial that each and every one of us learn, educate, and resist the misuse and abuse of healthcare services by successive governments for furthering their political agendas. So thank you for being part of that um, this evening. Um, uh, Next slide, please. Um, Sorry, I'm just... Someone's mentioned something in the chat, background noise. Ah, okay, thank you. I just moved the papers away. Um, so yeah, tonight we'll be hearing from, um, well, hopefully you heard what I'd said earlier. If not, let me know and I can repeat things. Um, Mashal Iftikhar, who's uh, a member of MEDAC Securitization of Health Group and an NHS doctor training in psychiatry. She's passionate about health and equity and mental illness and the intersection of criminal justice with mental health services. Um, I'll be co-presenting the um, introduction to preventing healthcare with uh, Marshall. And then we'll hear from Jav. Um, uh, who set up Bridging Communities in 2018, is passionate about equality and equity for the whole community, and amplifying voices of, of communities. He's got over 20 years of experience in the voluntary sector. And then finally, we'll be hearing from Latifa aK okay, who is a writer and producer. Uh, Latifa is the head of uh, Collective Care at Act Build Change, and prior to that, She's worked as the director of education at Muslaha. And she's a trustee at the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Okay, next slide, please. Um, I think uh, also it's worth mentioning that uh, we should acknowledge uh, members of our securitization of health group um, who've been involved in Medact research and others who've been part of our journey uh, and played a role in putting together these trainings. There are people within our group. Um, often Muslims, often in more junior precarious roles um, in the workplace that have been subjected to traumatization by PREVENT and who don't feel comfortable being the face of our work. And finally, a reminder that we'll be shutting down the chat box function now, um, but you will be able to ask questions during the Q&A. Um, you will be able to submit questions using the Q&A function um, as mentioned earlier. All right, so that's a lot of information um so before we get into this presentation i just want to pause actually and just take a moment and yeah what i'd like you invite you to do it's an offering and don't need to feel feel obliged to do so but
1: just actually notice your breath so don't change it don't feel the need to change it but just notice it curiously Inhale, exhale. And where are you feeling it? Is it in your chest? Is it in your stomach, maybe? Okay. Um, having done that, I want to start actually with uh, a poem. It's called Breathe,
0: and it's by Lynn Unger. Breathe, said the wind. How can I breathe at a time like this when the air is full of the smoke of burning tires, burning lives? Just breathe, the wind insisted. Easy for
1: you to say, if the weight of injustice is not wrapped around your throat, cutting off all air. I need you to breathe. I need you to breathe. Don't tell me to be calm when there are so many reasons to be angry, so much cause for despair. I didn't say to be calm, said the wind. I said to breathe. We're going to need a lot of air to make this hurricane together.
0: And with that, we'll uh, begin our hurricane, which is prevent duty in the NHS. next slide, please. So what is prevent? Prevents part of the government's counter-terrorism strategy with the stated aim of identifying vulnerability to radicalisation. In 2015, the government extended the prevent duty to healthcare and education under the guise of safeguarding, making the UK the only country in the world where healthcare bodies are legally obliged to respond to the quote, ideological challenge of terrorism. Healthcare workers are now expected to make a speculative assessment which involves trusting one's instinct. No one referred to Prevent has committed a crime. They've simply been suspected of susceptibility to radicalization.
1: Next slide.
2: What is the evidence for Prevent? Despite costing at least 40 million pounds a year to implement, Prevent has no credible evidence base and has never been independently evaluated. Its assessment criteria ERG 22 plus were based on a single psychological study. This paper was originally classified and not published in a peer-reviewed journal until 2015 and the underlying data set has never been published. The Royal College of Psychiatrists assert that public policy cannot be based on lack of transparency about evidence and calls for it to be comprehensively published and readily accessible.
1: Does PREVENT pose professional conflicts?
0: In a word, yes. Uh, There needs to be a concrete risk of death or serious harm in order to justify breaching confidentiality in the public interest. If, as the Home Office insists, PREVENT is is voluntary and a supportive program, the only route to referral should be through patient consent with respect for autonomy, of course. However, PREVENT blurs the distinction between safeguarding and public protection and involves unconscious bias. This together with state and institutional pressure to comply means that many, if not most referrals are made on the basis of very little evidence and without seeking patient consent. This appropriate breach, uh, inappropriate breaching of confidentiality erodes trust, it compromises the therapeutic relationship between practitioners and, and patients, and it d- discourages health seeking behavior. It also puts practitioners squarely in breach of their professional
1: obligations, GMC guidance and the law. Does PREVENT cause harm to people? The government
2: insists that PREVENT deals with all forms of terrorism and does not focus on any one community. However, Home Office leaked documents from 2019 describe PREVENT audiences as British Muslims, especially men aged 15 to 39. Although Prevent do not publish complete ethnicity and faith data, evidence from human rights organizations show that already marginalized BME communities are disproportionately referred with risks worsening health inequalities and that it is institutionally racist. There is also evidence that a Prevent referral can exacerbate or even cause physical and mental health problems.
1: Does Prevent keep us safe? No.
0: The UN Special Rapporteur on racism, xenophobia and other forms of racism, Ms Achiume and others, state that there's no causal link between prevent and any change in the level of terrorism or extremism in the UK. So we have to, of course, then question why why it exists. In 2018, following a visit to the UK, Ms Achiume called on the government to, at the very least, suspend the prevent duty and implement a comprehensive audit of its impact on racial equality, and on the political, social, and economic exclusion of racial and ethnic minorities, especially within Muslim communities. Next slide. And next is uh, our uh, Pithy Pigeon, who's Jordan, who's not with us turned uh, at the last event. To summarizing what we've mentioned, that's a lot of information to take in. So uh, just here's a brief, a brief summation here. Prevent has no credible evidence base. It's never been independently evaluated and there's concerning lack of transparency surrounding it. Inappropriate breaching of confidentiality risks eroding trust, harming the therapeutic-patient-practitioner relationship and discouraging health-seeking behaviour. Prevent disproportionately targets Muslims, and evidence shows that as a policy it is racist. It exacerbates health inequalities and is a source of physical and psychological harm for already marginalised people. There's no causal link between Prevent and the level of terrorism or violent extremism in the UK, and a, UK, and a UN expert calls on the UK to suspend Prevent while a comprehensive audit of its impact is conducted. So we um, believe at MEDAC that we need uh, to collectively create a society in which the sense of dignity, safety, and belonging of all people is protected. Next slide, please.
2: You can learn more about the, the contents of our presentation by reading MEDAC's report False Positives prevent counter-extremism policy in healthcare and this includes recommendations to government to independent reviewers and various health bodies including royal colleges as well as researchers Um, and you can find that on the website the link is below. Next slide please. And then this is the subsequent report report following on from the false positives report um, about vulnerability support hubs, which Amin mentioned earlier. So vulnerability support hubs are part of a counter-terrorism led project, which embeds NHS mental health professionals into police operations. And again, you can find out more about vulnerability support hubs by reading this report um, if you just Google the link. Next slide, please. How can we oppose prevent? MEDACT is calling for the repeal of PREVENT, the adoption of evidence-based public health policies and the redressal of harms caused by PREVENT. You can take collective action by supporting our work and becoming a member of MEDACT and
1: also joining our securitisation of health subgroup, as well as signing up to our mailing list. We got another slide? Yeah, we don't. <laughs> okay, so um, so next
0: we're going to be hearing from uh, Jav, just a bit more information actually about, about Jav. Um, so Jav's going to be speaking to us about his experiences with and thoughts on PREVENT in the healthcare setting and he's passionate about equality and equity for the whole community and seeks to amplify the voices of communities that the system does not know how to engage with. He has over 20 years of experience in the voluntary sector. Through his work at a strategic level, he hopes to bring positive change to ensure that services are co-designed in the true essence of co-production. And Jav set up Bridging Communities back in 2018. Jav, over to you.
3: Hi, good evening, everyone. Uh, First of all, I'd like to say, I suffer from mental health issues and it's a uh, unseen, a uh, hidden disability, and what the healthcare system does, or what prevent does, very, very strategically, is force people or enable people to use their subconscious racism and biases uh, in regards to categorize and profile people. Because I had a breakdown back in 2012 where I was going, it was in my early stage of my mental health breakdown. I was seeing that CBT, then I moved through the different services. And, and my last psychologist decided that I was a threat or I was radicalised. And at the time, as you probably know, when you hit depression, etc., you will lose, first thing that goes is your grooming. And so like my beard grew out etc you know like i thought personally i was making progress on the road to a recovery but what happened was my psychiatrist or psychologist whatever you want to call them decided that i i was a danger and i was radicalized because i had a beard and that basically is profiling and i was my journey was slightly lucky that the person that turned up to my house which I didn't expect to turn up, was a person that did the prevent training with me. And so basically he came in, had a cup of tea and left. But my journey could have been totally different because that person that knocked on my door could not have known me. And I could have been scrutinized, challenged, locked up and a whole host of things that would have made me my, a major impact on my health. And I'm thinking, hold on. English is my first language. This is happening to me. I'm born in the UK, I'm British. Yeah, they see me as a threat. And I'm thinking, this is not fair. And it took me over three years to get an apology. And that's how complicated they make the system, just to get a simple apology that they got it wrong. And what concerns me more is, how many more people are going through this, and doctors, psychologists, etc., are being forced to adopt or enforce a policy that they don't fully agree with. I'm aware of cases where people have asked questions during the uh, training, and because they've asked questions during the training, uh, later they've been disciplined. So they expect you to take it in, like, here's a presentation, this is what it is, no questions asked, and that is not what it should be, and it gives me grave concern that the Muslim community are targeted, it's quite simple, because up to about two years ago, we were called, every Muslim, were, we were called non-violent extremist, so that's basically implying, at some point, we're going to become extremist, and you know, like if you pause there and think about that, that's a very powerful statement. That's basically categorizing a whole uh, a religion saying that they're non violent extremist. And after a lot, lot of lobbying, now they've changed it to hateful extremist. But having that category previously, it clearly shows there's Islamophobia in the system. And it, and it stems from grassroots all the way up to the government. And it's a systemic problem, and we need to challenge it and get it changed. Uh, as my colleagues uh, colleagues have been saying earlier, there's no actual evidence to show that people are, from a certain religion are more likely to be uh, radicalized, uh, the ideology will change, there'll be harm in the public health. And more recently with the policing bill, what concerned me more, even more, was that your nationality could be taken away from you without any questions asked. They could do what they want and no recourse. So basically they get in a clean state and do what they want to. Or if they take my nationality away from me, what am I? Where do I belong? I was brought up, born here in the UK my ethnic origins are from Kashmir, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm British. So mm-hmm. where do I go? Am I, am I going to become a nomad? So and you see a lot of changes in the Muslim community, because the Muslim communities have started reducing the size of their beards, etc., in the fear that they might get referred to prevent. Yet the white counterparts are increasing their beard sizes as a fashion statement. So, you know, like, where's this disparity? Where's the equality? And this is, it actually angers me because I, even like, I'm, I'm not showing sure in it, but it it's had a major impact on my uh, mental health journey to the extent now I will not engage in any psychological therapy. So, like, Only person I trust at the moment is my GP. uh, Because he has my medication and I'm would say I'm at an equilibrium and I can actually sit here and talk about my experience. What about those people that don't have that chance? What about those people that have been deported? What about those people that have been locked up and nobody knows about them? Why should the opinion of one person that's been trained? They uh, make a subconscious or don't like the person and make a referral and they get ostracized. And the key point to this is the whole of this uh, does not talk about any cultural competencies. It talks about profiling. You get pigeonholed and unfortunately, the target audience is a... people from the Islamic faith. So there's a considerable amount of Islamophobia throughout the system. And I could talk about this quite considerably, uh, but I think I'm going to leave it there. Let my colleagues add some more substance to this to help you understand why it's important for people to speak up, uh, stick together, because especially with the recent policing bill coinciding with that in Liverpool, uh, that incident about the bombing or that taxi so they're shifting the public eye to Liverpool yet behind the scene they're trying to put the police bill through you want know, to reinforce that same narrative Because if it's if there's a, a white person doing some thing this it's a white person suffering from mental health issues or such and such a thing but as soon as it's a Muslim person, their religion gets mentioned. And that's two different narratives. So everyone else, it's their ethnic origin. But for Muslims, it's their religion. And that creates fear. And that's lack of understanding. And they're reinforcing that. I think I'm going to go quiet there because I'm going to get
1: quite angry at the moment. Thank you, Jav. Um Yeah, it's um it's a lot. It's a lot. Um it's um it's actually heartbreaking that you aren't
0: able, you don't feel safe um seeking support from NHS services. I'm just um I'm somewhat heartened that at the very least you feel you can approach your GP. So that's something. Um but it goes, I mean it goes goes some way to kind of demonstrating some of what you mentioned about how, like there's a step before, which is the dehumanization, like the Islamophobia um, as a systemic problem. That means we're a little less human, which
1: means that it's okay to profile us. Um, um, and yeah, that's a lot. So thanks so much for sharing and um, just, um, yeah, sending you a virtual hug. Okay, um, it is hard to move on, but
0: such is the nature of these um, these events and the structures that we've got more to cover. Um, so I'm really pleased that we've got Latifa uh, joining us this evening. I just wanted to mention a little bit about Latifa, um, a bit more about Latifa before we begin. With. And frame the frame the, the, the um frame the conversation a bit um so so Leif, Leif is going to talk about uh, how we can move uh, towards uh, uh, move more towards approaches to safeguarding that aren't reliant on surveillance and profiling in the ways that Jav's just so uh, adequately and vividly described and instead uh, approaches that are uh, rooted in safety and trust. Latifa is a writer, producer and researcher. She's uh, just taken uh, the role of head of collective care at the organization Act Bill Change. Congratulations on that. Um, and prior to that, she worked as director of education at the charity Maslaha. Uh, over the past year in her role at Maslaha, Latifa has worked on a ra- uh, with a range of partners to develop a workbook on radical safeguarding uh, that will be released later this month. And I'm really looking forward to, to reading that. Um, Latifa is also a trustee at the Inclusive Mosque Initiative, and she has an academic background in law and formerly worked as a journalist in Istanbul. Before Latifa begins, I just um, I wanted to just briefly reflect actually on on this year uh, working on these these um, these trainings because it is the last of of four trainings that we've delivered this year. Uh, uh, it's been long. Uh, it's been difficult at times. Um, and reflecting on it today, I was thinking that we can often get caught up in doing and reacting, for understandable reasons, but this often leaves little room for being and visioning. Yet the process of liberation requires being as a starting point, and visioning as a guide. So to end this series, introduce Latifa and to uh, set a course
1: for the new year, I'd like to share a quote uh, by Aurora Evans Morales. If we are to live audaciously, we need to imagine in rich detail the biggest, most delicious,
0: satisfying, inclusive future that we can. A great flowering of human potential and well-being project our hearts and minds into that future, project our hearts and minds into that future, and then spend our lives working towards it. And each time the weather buffets us, wait for a glimpse of sky, find that bright point of light and adjust our course. Aurora goes on, the world is full of weather, full of all the urgency and danger of the present moment. But the work of social justice has always been urgent. And if we let that drive us, we'll never make the time and space to dream together, dream big
1: and set a real course toward our dreaming. And with that, over to you, Latif. Thank you so much, Amin. Um, can you hear me okay?
4: Yes, okay, great. Um, thank you. I mean, you've set me up um, for great things. Hopefully, I deliver in some way. Um, but thank you so much to um, to everyone at Medac for continuing to provide these really critical spaces um, to build momentum in the uh, fight against prevent and securitization and surveillance in healthcare and beyond. Um, and thanks to Amin and Michelle and to Jav. Um, it's great to be here today as part of the conversation and job solidarity with you and on what you've experienced and um, yeah, I really I, I really hope that this will be part of the bigger picture of getting rid of prevent um, for good. And um, as Amin said today, I'll be sharing with you a piece of work and um, you can see a little bit from the front cover there um, that will be launched soon Um, a radical safeguarding workshop that I co-wrote and developed at Maslaha together with a colleague, Alex Johnston, um, and with the support of some brilliant partners that some of you will be familiar with. So No More Exclusions, um, the Contextual Safeguarding Network, the Radical Education Forum, and more. Um, And the workbook is tailored towards education practitioners, but we hope it can be built on and applied in all sorts of different contexts and sectors, like the health sector. And it's worth noting that I won't be talking specifically about prevent. I'll be bringing in prevent, but I'll be speaking and um, situating prevent within uh, a problematizing of safeguarding as a whole. Um, so maybe we can move on to the next slide. Um, and when thinking why this work and why now, um, in a nutshell, because safeguarding practice in the context of institutional racism, increased securitization, and surveillance in schools. And the permeation of criminal justice policy into schools often results in the most marginalized young people um, and young people of color in particular being criminalized instead of having their welfare needs appropriately addressed um, we can see that really starkly for example when we look at the school to prison pipeline in the UK um, statistics from 2018 show that 89% of young people who are in who are in prison had been excluded from school, which is so, such a stark statistic. Um, on top of that, things like police presence in schools and the impact that has on young people and practitioners, and um, the sky high disproportionate levels of exclusion of young black boys, and um, the disproportionate number of young people of colour in um, Peruse, um, and the disproportionate number of Muslim children and young people referred to prevent. Um, so we started to think about this at Maslaha for many reasons, including that sourcing good safeguarding training is really hard. Um, and as a designated safeguarding lead at Maslaha, I couldn't find, I put that in bold, I could not find um, safeguarding training that critiqued the way that safeguarding itself often ends up criminalising, pathologizing, and harming young people who are racialized and or Uh, working class who have special educational needs, disabilities, or or neurodivergent. Um, Most safeguarding training is very fear-based. A lot of you will be familiar with that. Um, It centers a lot on surveillance and scrutiny instead of building trust and relationships. Um, And it often centers harm and not um, safety and doesn't consider how structural violence, such as racism, mean that safety will look very different for different communities. Um, Like many of you, I'm sure, I've come out of those trainings with colleagues feeling upset, frustrated, feeling ill-equipped to actually take steps if a young person or vulnerable adult was experiencing harm. Um, And in making the workbook, we talked to practitioners who spoke about feeling fearful, lacking in agency, and resigned to responding in ways that they know will cause young people and their families further harm, um, but they don't feel like they have any other choices. Um, And practitioners who are frustrated um, to have worked with young people, with families, patients, to have built trust, only to have that undermined by blanket rules, policies and punishments. Um, So in all of that, I suppose, we have this ironic reality of trying to safeguard in spite of safeguarding strategies instead of because of. Um, So I wanted to think a little bit about risk and the construction of risk, and as Amin and Michelle and Jav have have laid out, PREVENT operates in a pre-criminal space, and that was a new thing when PREVENT became a statutory duty in 2015. Um, And despite the fact that the flawed evidence base that we've already heard about is well documented, um, the pre-criminal in PREVENT has really disturbingly normalized a focus on pre-criminal space or we could refer to it as non-criminal space because nothing has happened um, as an acceptable way of approaching safeguarding and we can see the ripple effects of this in the most recent policy around serious youth violence knife and knife crime etc so the policing bill that Jab was talking about will will introduce a prevent style duty for serious youth violence in England and Wales Um, we also know that knife crime prevention orders are being piloted in the UK at the moment which rely really heavily on suspicions of criminality and require a very low standard of proof so a young person doesn't even need to be seen to be carrying a knife in order to get an order. Um, we know that across safeguarding practice the concept of risk um, of, or risk being constructed around certain groups as risky or at risk impacts particular racialized communities around particular issues. So as we've, uh, I've mentioned, young black boys in the gangs matrix or knife crime or exclusions, Muslim children and young people prevent, um, FGM being seen as, and I quote, an African problem. Um, Muslim girls, particularly South Asian girls around forced marriage and honor-based violence, again in quotation marks. Um, And research has shown that judgments about pre-criminal risk, as has already been touched on, will always be based on human judgment as opposed to being evidence-based, which obviously opens the door to bias, profiling, and so on. Um, And importantly, when it comes to safeguarding, placing the focus on identifying particular dangers that are expected from young people from particular groups or adults from particular groups, obscures what might actually be happening in that person's life, meaning that that person's individual circumstances are being completely overlooked and missed and that that person will not receive the care and support that would otherwise perhaps promote their best interests, which in itself is a huge safeguarding issue. Um, So to give an example, um, in the UK specialist, black and brown domestic violence services in the UK have shown how the association of honour-based violence and forced marriage with particular racialized communities has not only justified increased policing, surveillance and profiling, but it has led to honour-based violence being treated as a cultural issue as opposed to an issue of violence against women and girls. Um, and I quote here, separate laws are applied to address the problems with specific punitive measures that are disproportionately applied, and that do not align with other violence against women related laws. So in a safeguarding context in, for example, schools and colleges, this red alert around forced marriage, for example, and Muslim girls um, and the failure to situate that within a wider context of violence against women and girls, where there is existing frameworks, practice, et cetera, can mean that the actual issues affecting those girls and young women are totally overlooked. Um, issues that might be more effectively addressed, for example, as domestic abuse or in the context of conversations on healthy relationships, boundaries or consent. Um, so in the workbook, we problematize the way safeguarding racially profiles and harms um, people of colour, young people of colour around a whole range of safeguarding issues. Um, and one thing that all of those issues have in common is that they are often huge safeguarding issues in themselves that have serious impacts um, on young people's safety lives, their families' lives and their futures. Um, I mentioned the statistic about the direct correlation between exclusions and the young people in prison, um, and Zaharin, um, who from No More Exclusions has described exclusions as institutional abandonment, which really sums it up. Um, A system that casts out young people who need support the most um, and a system. I'm not talking about individuals, but it's a system where there is no care, compassion, or provision to support young people around the root causes of whatever it is that they are experiencing, experiencing themselves, that means they're being excluded. Um, and again, today we've heard in this event about the profound impact that prevent has on mental health, on well-being. And the lifelong implications of a referral on, on an individual and their family, how isolating it is what it, what how dangerous it is to be cut off from critical services, and um, and so on. So in all of this, we can acknowledge that the system is flawed, and um, and then we ask the question with the structures that currently exist, including prevent, what and where is the prospect of safety for children and young people and communities, and. Um, So thinking about what is a radical approach um, in the workbook, we consider that a radical approach to child safety means tracing the root causes of harm to children. And we look at some of the cultures, behaviours and structures that underpin and enable this harm. And a few key frameworks underpin the approach that we take in the workbook. Um, The first one is prison abolition. So for many communities, and um, as we've heard today, state intervention, policing, and a criminal justice system are life-diminishing and life-threatening. And so radical safeguarding requires imagining possibilities outside of these institutions. Um, the second framework is carcerality. So the concept of carcerality refers to the ways in which the ideas of incarceration, policing, and surveillance are perpetuated through technological systems, Um, and our ways of imagining the world. So a Prevent 101, um, and in the resource, we try and unpick that from understandings of safety. And finally, um, the last framework is that of transformative justice, which refers to a way of responding to the violence within communities that doesn't create more violence and harm. Um, It's important to note that transformative justice isn't a new practice, that there's a deep rooted history within oppressed communities Um, of practising community safety away from state systems. Um, And this work wouldn't have been possible, and the work that we've done with the workbook wouldn't be possible without the resource, scholarship, and tools on transformative justice and abolition that are rooted in Black radical and Indigenous traditions. Um, So I want to run through a few examples of offerings we have in the workbook. And I should have mentioned at the start that, you know, I hope this can be a spark um, I come with many more questions than answers, <laughs> but uh, but I think that it will be useful in thinking through uh, some elements of practice. Um, so one of our offerings in the workbook is that as practitioners with safeguarding duties, as much as it may not feel like it, we all do have discretion and we legally have discretion and we can use that to ask critical questions and to shift our practice. When thinking about discretion, and a space for discretion and decision-making, we found Dr. Leona Vaughan's work around tolerable harms really helpful. Um, so Dr. Vaughan has suggested that often in safeguarding, we're given the discretion to decide what is more tolerable for that person or child, a referral um, or what is going on, uh, slash being perceived to be going on for that child. So when, for example, a staff member chooses to make a referral, or operate within certain safeguarding strategies, they're deciding that the potential harm of those acts is a more tolerable harm than the potential harms of not doing anything at all. Um, So an example that she gave in a talk I listened to a while ago was she mentioned a practitioner who referred a girl to prevent who was white and experiencing domestic abuse. At some point in their care, the girl converted to Islam at which point the practitioner started focusing more on the worry that she was at risk of being radicalized. Um, And when Dr. Vaughan asked this practitioner what she would have done if PREVENT hadn't existed, she said she would have talked to the young woman about domestic violence. Um, And her point then was essentially a lot of the time practitioners do have the answers. Um, In that case, the tolerable harm that the practitioner concluded was that the girl sorry let me see the tolerable harm was that the girl would disengage from social services and be isolated and stigmatized which is what happened when when she was referred to prevent she had a I can't remember the details but there was a a year where she didn't know what was happening waiting to hear back from her referral it had huge impacts on her mental health and the intolerable harm was this potential nebulous risk that this practitioner thought this girl could be at risk of of being involved in terrorism because she'd converted. Um, So moving on then, and we can come back to that um, in the Q&A, but another another offering we had in the workbook is expanding definitions. Um, So when we looked at the legislation, we felt that actually there is quite a lot of room within the law as it stands to shift to a more radical way of safeguarding. Um, One of the most fundamental elements of safeguarding legislation, as a lot of you will know, is that decisions have to be made to support the best interests of the child. Um, And we suggest that an examination of the ways that cultures and structures of of schools or institutions enable harm to children should be included explicitly in a radical definition of a child's best interests. And next slide, please. So building on broadening definitions, um, something consistently emphasized in social care policy, um, and I'm so sorry, I'm just looking at this slide in slow motion, and I'm realizing that that was, I wanted to show that as an example of harms, experienced that are tolerable and harms that are not tolerable. So we could maybe just have that on the screen briefly in case people want to see. The second example is a prevent example. Um,
1: And I'll leave you to read that out if that's okay. Um, Yeah, so moving on from that, um, because I'm aware of time, building on broadening
4: definitions, something consistently emphasized in social care policy is that everyone has a part to play So we suggest that this doesn't just mean that everyone needs to act as eyes and ears of surveilling um, children and their families but instead as active and protective bystanders who build safety and act in relationships of trust and if we could move on to the next slide please. So as radical practitioners it is within our discretion to use a more expansive definition of harm that includes cultures and structures Um, And acknowledging that safeguarding isn't just when we make a referral, but it's also when we, for example, build strong relationships with patients and families. Um, And radical safeguarding means acknowledging the work already being done by practitioners working closely with children and families and empowering those practitioners to be less reliant on social services to make decisions in those children's best interests, um, particularly for lower threshold harms. Um, and best practice in social work supports this. And um, there's tools from the Contextual Safeguarding Network, which I'll loop back to um, shortly. Um, and also uh, policy documents, such as Working Together to Safeguard Children, which are designed to support practitioners to take the lead in embedding safeguarding practices within their cultures, without the involvement of social care practitioners. Again, for more lower threshold harms um, and I've just I've put the, these up on screen because unfortunately, because we're not in a workshop scenario, we can't work through these together. But I wanted to give some examples of some prompts that we've used in the workbook, if that's helpful. Um, and maybe we can move on to the next slide, please. Um, so this again is is one of the activities we have in a workbook expanding on a child's best interest. And we invite people to um, think what might you include when you think of the best interests of a child. So reflecting, for example, when you were at school um, and listing five things that would be important for your teacher in school to understand about your best interests. Um, and maybe that's something that some of you m- maybe would come back to later on. Maybe not, but still. Um, so. And again, just to bring prevent in briefly, I think we can safely say that the lasting trauma that referrals create for young people and adults are inconsistent with safeguarding's primary consideration of serving the best interests of a child. Um, and then just moving on, I'm very conscious of time here, um, but in the workbook, uh, We offer a few frameworks for reconceptualizing the way that we understand safeguarding. One of them is examining the quality of our relationships and really knows in trust instead of surveillance. Um, So we know that fear is a huge part of safeguarding. It can lead to people with safeguarding duties feeling like they need to always be watching out for potential future harm to children. In the workbook, we share a really helpful tool, which is on screen at the moment that the Contextual Safeguarding Network have produced. Um, And it's just worth mentioning that the Contextual Safeguarding Network really lead the way um, in the social care field in terms of bringing context into safeguarding within the social care system. And their work is really encouraging when thinking about how change can happen within social care systems, and offers a lot of tools for all of us working outside of that sector and thinking about alternative sources of safety and safeguarding. And so I'd, I really recommend looking up their work. Um, in the workbook, we build on the contextual safeguarding approach by suggesting the importance of an intersectional, under, intersectional understanding of context. So that safeguarding radically means that we need to also examine the intersectional ways that oppression plays out for each young person. So again, that racism, that structural and cultural violence are all part of context that is relevant when we're thinking about safety and safeguarding. Um, so we can see the tool here on screen. Um, and I personally found it really helpful. I think it's useful when you're looking at it to, to really dwell on the right-hand column um, in terms of thinking when we're safeguarding, if our actions are working to build trust, or are they making patients, young people and families feel surveilled, especially when the latter is so normalized? Um, And in the safeguarding Workbook, we acknowledge that when harmful cultures and structures are so normalized, it can be really difficult to identify that anything is wrong and to imagine alternatives. Um, So to speak to what I mean, built me up to deliver in terms of visioning, I think it's important to note um, that acceptance of uncertainty, complexity, and the limits of intervention are really crucial to a radical approach. Um, Importantly, we emphasize this again in the workbook, practitioners who are adversarial, outcome-driven and reliant on certainty and control will likely end up reinforcing power structures as they exist. Um, And again, I wish we had more time to talk through this, um, this resource but I will send through a link where people can access that um, afterwards if that's helpful Um, and I would recommend looking up the contextual safeguarding networks beyond referrals toolkit as well Um, and finally if we could just move to the next slide I'm very nearly done Um, throughout the resource we suggested questions that could be used to guide radical safeguarding practice Um, and my colleague Alex who I co-wrote the workbook with developed a really brilliant set of questions acknowledging that radical safeguarding is better guided by questions than by protocol. So on screen we can see some of the questions that we developed around thinking about surveillance. So as part of a radical safeguarding practice we can choose to ask ourselves are we making room for this family's privacy in the way we would other families? Are our actions working to build trust with this child and or their family? Are we being intentional about the records we keep and critical about where they may be shared and who may have access to them? Is there space for uncertainty, complexity and open-endedness in our approach? And just to quickly move on to the next slide, because I just wanted to include this, um, the, the the questions before mentioned thinking about trust, but I think it's worth really meditating on every element of the ways that we think or assume when we're thinking about safeguarding so again what does I'm sorry I have to look really closely at my screen to see this but um, what makes you feel trusted and what earns your trust what erodes your trust think of a person that you share trust with what does having trust mean in that relationship what does it look like what does it feel like and again these can all be really useful prompts in helping us reflect on how we may go about approaching safeguarding and building trust and how trust means different things for different people because of circumstances and structures etc. Um, so to finish off um, let me see actually no I mean that's me done I think we can finish there Um, and I realize I didn't say at the start but I I should have that in all of this acknowledging that we live in a deficit time we live in a time of deficit whether it's in the education system whether it's in the NHS Um, and I know that what a lot of people listening might be thinking is I don't have time for that I don't have the support for that I don't have time to build relationships even though I would like to so I think all of this is thinking we, we when we're dreaming we're thinking about the structures where, when we talk about, for example, abolishing PREVENT or defunding PREVENT, we're also thinking where, where are we putting resource, what are we funding, um, and acknowledging in all of this that, again, it's, um, whether it's youth centres, whether it's specialist domestic violence services, whether it's holistic evidence-based policies, unlike PREVENT, um, that these are, these are the important things that we we know bring safety and wellness into people's lives, and those are also really important factors as well. So to go back to what I was saying, the system is flawed, yes, but within that there are spaces and places that some of that possibility can be explored. Thank you. Thanks
0: so much Latifah. That was a lot, <laughs> there was so much there. Um, wow, I'm definitely gonna, I have to spend a lot more time looking back and reflecting and I look forward to seeing the, the resource in detail when it's published. Um, yeah, uh, for those of you that are, um, have been listening in, uh, we've got a few questions in the Q&A, so just a reminder that you can still post more questions there. Um, yeah, and just speaking to that, what you just mentioned at the end Latifa, about um, the time issue, um, you know, one thing we're taught uh, from the very beginning of medical training is non-maleficence, do no harm. We seem to have enough time to do harm.
1: <laughs> so,
0: um, so I think just coming back to the idea of, of being before doing, just like, I think some of the things you mentioned, like safeguarding is a safeguarding issue in itself <laughs> um, and um, expanding uh, our definitions of, 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 of harm. Um, and how institutions enable harm. I think some some of that is just about sitting with being um, and the necessity uh, of of doing that more. Um, Yeah, it was, uh, and and being guided by the questions you mentioned as well around radical safeguarding, questions over protocols, there's a lot there to think about. And I think a lot of health workers, and it's a lot of food for thought for us. Um, So thanks so much for sharing that um i feel like i just want to sit with that for longer but <laughs> um we've we've got um we we've got we've got time um so yeah it it, it wasn't rushed and um we can always come back teeth if you wanted to add more but we've we, we've certainly got time for, for, for questions um we've got another half hour uh, well, just maybe 20, 20 minutes or so and i can see there are five questions or so so i'm just gonna um have a look and see where we're at with the questions. Um, And uh, just a reminder again, that you can tick the uh, anonymous box if you don't want your name read out with the question. Um, So,
1: the first question is, uh, let me see which one should we choose. Uh, okay, this one might be for
0: you, Latifa. Um, regarding uh, radical safeguarding, is there any case law yet which defines the limits of discretion or the threshold of decision in terms of suspicion, balance of probabilities beyond reasonable doubt um, allowed to a clinician? Uh, so, uh, is there any case law which defines the limits of discretion allowed to a clinician? So I guess in your context it would be in terms of teaching, so um, I don't know if you have a response to that.
4: Shall I jump in now? I mean... Yeah, please. Um, yeah, thank you for the question, and it's something that I would also be very interested to know, but my 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 strong sense is that there isn't any case law that defines the limits of discretion. Um, because I think that when we think about reasonable doubt or discretion, for example, reasonable doubt in the context of prevent, um, these are all such nebulous terms. And in the same way that the indicators for prevent are so nebulous and vague. Um, the when you think like, for example, like I was saying, a child's best interests a child's best interest will mean something different to so many people, and it will involve so many. Um, it can be as expansive or as restrictive as you want it to be. Um, so I would I would say that it would be really hard, actually, to define the limits of discretion um, in that way. Um, but that within you know a couple of uh, sessions ago on on these trainings. One of the speakers, um, Susan, was talking about um, the possibilities of was talking about prevent training um, and the possibilities to essentially create space within what is actually what what um, healthcare workers are required to do in official prevent training. And I do think that there is there is a lot of there is a lot of room for interpretation. The issue is that because prevent is so racialized. And that room for interpretation often goes totally one way because that's where the roots of prevent are, but at the same time, there is discretion, there are alternative frameworks like I mentioned in that case with domestic abuse and then this worry about um, uh, prevent that people can refer to those what they may otherwise take recourse to in their practice if that makes sense, so it's not a straight answer at all, um, but I, I suppose I'm just reflecting myself on the fact that I don't think there can really be limits to discretion in that way. I hope that was some useful, Kit.
1: Thanks, Katifa, yeah. Um, not sure if um, Michelle, you wanted to add anything?
0: Don't feel obliged to. Um,
2: I was just going to say I think particularly in mental health there seems to be a very um, mental health workers tend to be very risk averse and very cautious and in these sort of um, meetings that you have when you discuss risk it tends to be the most risk averse approach um, that tends to be favoured um, and you have to spend quite a lot of time justifying why you wouldn't um, take the least risky approach risk in terms of not for example referring someone to safeguarding and I think that's sort of increasingly prevalent um, just because of the nature of um, sort of everyone being
1: worried about sort of medical legal issues and things like that, unfortunately doesn't leave you with that much room. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's these grey areas and blurred boundaries that, that I, I believe
0: um, prevent uh, exploits really. Um, Right, so we've got a question here that um, I believe is um, a- a tackled in the, um, in, the, in the first report and it's a common one. Um, so if anyone would like to address it here, feel, please feel free. Um, so the question is, it was uh, interesting to hear about the leaked prevent audience information as a lot of the rhetoric in the prevent trainings is currently about people being radicalized by the extreme right wing. What are your thoughts on this? And do you have any suggestions about the role of health workers in helping young
1: people who seem to be at risk of being radicalized by right wing ideologies? Again, don't feel you have to answer that one, but if if anyone would, uh, Latifah or anyone else would like to respond, feel free. If you don't just signal and sign up. I'm thinking, um, that's why I'm not saying anything. Let me think a little bit more. Yeah, sure. See if I have anything
4: sensible to contribute.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly used to, the first thing that came to mind for me when I read it was that it's, uh, it's a very um, prominent um, rhetoric used to justify, prevent in terms of, um, yeah, you know, these people are referred to. So it's, not, it's not a Muslim thing. Um, but the data doesn't really support that. But I was
4: also thinking, I mean, on that, that yeah. um, I know in the context of, for example, prison abolition, Miriam um, Kava, who's an incredible activist and writer, etc., has talked about the fact that when you, for example, extending prison, extending or being open to reform in prisons um, will only serve to entrench those, that system um, and extend it. And I think similarly with prevent. Um, a lot of effort has been made to to frame, prevent, as also targeting far right extremism and so on. But as Amin said, the with the roots of prevent are very obvious, and the way that it continues to impact communities is very obvious. Um, and it's yeah. So in that sense, I, I would I would always um, I, I would always think in those terms. I think that that working within the space of prevent and thinking about reformist elements of prevent is is something that I think increasingly a lot of people are, are acknowledging would be would not be helpful and would be um, yeah would only serve to essentially strengthen and galvanize that system um, but I know that doesn't specifically speak to what you've asked more. Yeah, yeah
0: no thanks. Uh, the, the one thing that I always come back to as well as um, what, what I just mentioned earlier is non maleficent so the kind of a step before the question is the recognition that it's a harmful program so. If it's a harmful program, does it really matter whether, who it's targeting? Like who is referred through it? Um, it's harmful, so it shouldn't exist in the first place. It has no, it has no um, credible uh, evidence base, and it is, um, and it causes harm. So it doesn't really matter who's referred or targeted. It's it's, it's probably it's it's it's, um, it's harmful. Um, um, okay. Um, Right, so there's a few quickies. Um, so Latifa has a question for you. Could you please remind us of the name of the toolkit you recommended? I think it was contextual safeguarding um, um, uh, beyond referrals, but I'm not sure whether referring to that or what you're publishing soon.
4: Let me. Um, I'm going to get a link for that and and uh, put it there.
0: Okay. Um, another one, which I think is answered in the report. Uh, is around numbers. So, um, is it known how many referrals are made each year under the heading of prevent? I think certainly for particular trusts, NHS trusts, and numbers of referrals, we have got data on that in through the Freedom of Information that was then published in the reports. Um, but more broadly, um, I don't know if um, if uh, Latifa or
1: Michelle or Ajav any, or have any um, responses to that on numbers. Again, you don't have to answer the question. So. But yeah, no, do look to our report as well, because we've got figures in there if you're interested. Um... So there's a question. I'm, I'm not familiar with this, this might be. Does anyone have an idea
0: of what the newest category of prevent referrals mean, i.e., undefined,
1: incoherent ideology? I'm not aware of that. But... Anyone familiar with those categories? I'm not actually familiar with those categories. Um, Yeah. Although it's interesting
4: that they're always making new categories.
0: Yeah. I mean, the most incoherent ideology I'm aware
1: of is the actual PREVENT criteria and program itself. Um, Right. Um, Most of what I've seen regarding PREVENT has been relating
0: to children and young people. I work with adults, are there any important differences
1: in this group? Again, any of you want to respond to that? I don't, there's nothing, um, in terms of
4: important differences, I suppose I'm reflecting on the fact that one of the many flawed evidence bases of prevent is that there there's a, a high focus put on children and young people in terms of the focus in schools and um, which again is a is a flawed evidence base and isn't substantiated and um, so we do so, so we, there is a huge number of referrals of children and young people a disproportionate number of referrals of children and young people and um, but from my understanding there isn't or there aren't differences in the ways that, that, that those logics would be applied. But to acknowledge that education and children going to school every day um, in that context is is yeah, is is quite specific when you compare it to the way that adults may experience services. Um, but I don't
1: know what anyone else would say on that.
2: I haven't really noticed any um, significant differences in terms of, for example, likelihood of being referred to prevent or a prevent referral being considered. I guess the only thing I would say is, again, from um, a sort of mental health perspective, normal adolescent processes, like trying to work out your identity, who you are, asking questions about the world, something that, you know, everyone kind of goes through as they're growing up. Um, People, you know, become more alert to those. Um, in, in sort of children and young
1: people and they tend to be more suspicious of that. That's sort of my main experience, but I haven't noticed any other significant differences.
3: I think also uh, this, the age categories that was mentioned, it actually speaks volumes. So like, like uh, it's what Masha just said, like at that age, you're about... You're finding about yourself what your identity is, where you're gonna go, etc., and having that perceived as something as radicalization or a different ideology. That's the biggest problem because it leaves too much room for interpretation. Because we were talking about right wing and uh, what I mentioned in my uh, talk earlier, that it, uh, we uh, before we were called non-violent extremists, extremists now it's called hateful, so right wing is hateful extremists, so now it would be treated better under prevent or should be but unfortunately the stats show that the Islamophobia or religion biases are still more prevalent. Thank you, Jim. Um, Right, so
0: this is Bit niche. I don't know if anyone, any of you, are familiar with Karen Stenner's work on the authoritarian disposition. But the question is, does Karen Stenner's work on the authoritarian disposition have any bearing on this whole area? Um, I'm not familiar with Karen Stenner, but others might be.
2: I'm not familiar with um, Karen Stenner's uh, work, The Authoritarian Disposition, but just sort of guessing from the title, I would say that I know particularly in sort of um, people of a medical background, I think the training that we receive is often to be able to sort of interpret people and try and understand people, especially mental health. Um, you can find that there's quite the, the balance of power, particularly can be shifted in a way that gives clinicians quite a lot of power. Um, over service users and sort of like increases their confidence and feeling that they can sort of understand um, service users and sort of translating expertise they might have in understanding people's mental health problems and feel that they're then confident in sort of assessing things like radicalization. So that's, I don't know if if that's what you mean by the authoritarian
1: disposition, Um, but it's certainly prevalent in medicine. Yeah. And that, um... That power dynamic and um,
0: what imbalances and the vulnerability around that is important in that earlier question around any distinctions we want to make between children and, and adults essentially people are engaging with health services uh, there's a degree of vulnerability and they're coming to us for for help and support so it's um regardless I think of whether you're a child or an adult it's um it's it's really quite um, worrying that the institutions can be traumatizing and re-traumatizing in these ways.
3: Also, linking to that, I would say, especially in the healthcare profession, also they tend to deal like it's far more easier to deal with the physical symptom that you actually see, etc., and which could be categorized, but matters of the mind are very complex, we're still learning about it, and, and for a majority of the applications that we apply to people that the medical uh, psychologist professional see is white Eurocentric, so it, there's very little talk about cultural competencies, different communities, etc, how to interact, what words, and because in some of the languages the words will not translate. Um, this is, I think, this is a, where the journey begins because I was talking to a colleague about cultural competence. I go, I could, I could give you a brief overview, but that's your journey to start learning more. Because so there will be no training that I'll give you a full overview of cultural competency and make sure you are fully co- culturally competent because the world is vast. So, like, it's very important because I'm actually at the moment pushing for in the psychological profession, where university students spend more time with people with lived experience from different communities. So they actually get exposed to that far earlier, rather than qualifying, going into the communities and thinking, what should I do here? I'm not sure how to deal with that. What does that word mean? And it can easily get taken out of context. and. In regards to the matters of the mind, because uh, uh, in the 1900s, they used to call it people uh, the alienists. The, uh, and that word really resonates with me because it is alien, because we haven't discovered the full power of the mind. We're still discovering different parts and how it's all working.
1: Thanks Jeff, yeah. I think when, when we're dealing with with this degree of
0: uh, what I would term cultural incompetency, I think it's uh, helpful to reflect on some of the um, ideas around cultural humility that Atifa that kind of touched on in, 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 in her presentation. So yeah, I think some of those um, more radical approaches really really I think you'll, you'll find quite useful in, in applications within healthcare settings. Um, we've got maybe time for One more question. Um, And that one is, are panelists aware of cases where people referred to PREVENT have refused to take part? uh, And what happened next? It
1: will be interesting to hear whether matters are escalated or if PREVENT are actually a voluntary program. If anyone wants to respond to that. I would be interested to hear
4: for Michelle, you, you unmuted at the same time, but I was thinking from a health perspective, how do you experience that um, as health professionals in those scenarios?
2: Um, so I, I was actually going to say, um, I was going to reference the clinical psychologist, Tharik Yunus, who's actually done a lot of work with um, mental health service users um, and Prevent. And I think his the papers that he's written actually um, sort of used anonymized accounts of people and their uh, sort of experience of navigating um, Prevent and what's happened when they've tried to sort of resist sort of channel intervention. So I think, who I'm not sure who asked that question, but I would definitely look up Tharik Yunus' work. Um, from a kind of health Care perspective in my experience, anyway, in mental health, unlike um, safeguarding referrals, often when you when someone is referred to prevent, it's really difficult to follow up what happens to them and to actually find out what was the outcome of the prevent referral and what happened unless they um, share it with you. And I think, as um, Javas already mentioned, often it leads to a deterioration in in the sort of practitioner service user relationship. So it's it's really difficult to actually find out. I don't know. I mean, if you have any experience.
0: Yeah, no, I can't I can't comment really on that. I don't I don't have experience. But as you say, I know Thorek's
1: done Tarek
0: was like our first um speaker in the first of our four events, so and has done a lot of work on this. So yeah, do do uh, watch that recording online and also look up uh, his work. Um wow, okay, some really great questions. Um and it was really an amazing event. So I think probably we should think about um. Wrapping up because it's a lot, <laughs> and you need to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> so um, thanks so much to to everyone that, that joined, and also again to Mashal and Jav and 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 uh, and and Rosie for your generous uh, contributions this evening. Um, you'll see a link in uh, the uh, chat, which I'll, I'll 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 point out what that's about in a sec. So. Just to close a few things to mention um the securitization of health group have some uh, exciting actions uh, and plans coming up next month in december so if you are interested in getting involved you can sign up uh, to our mailing list for updates um you can also sign up to become a member of med act if you would like to so they're unable to do this work without uh, the support and dedication of uh, volunteer members so uh, yeah do, do have a think about that if you are interested um so you'll find all the information you need uh, in terms of joining our mailing list or becoming a member. You'll also be able to uh, easily locate resources mentioned during this evening in the presentations via the link uh, that that Rosie's put in the chat. Um, Finally, I just wanted to mention that I appreciate that the content of this evening uh, is pretty heavy um, and you may have been affected or felt personally moved by it. So one of the resources in that link is to a mutual support guide. Um, that i like to put together for people uh, uh, encountering prevent in the workplace. Uh, so do check that out. And there's also mention of uh, supportive organizations in there um, that, may be off, uh, that, are able, that offer resources and, and su- support for people affected by prevent. Um, you can also uh, email Reem, who leads the Securitization of Health Group, but wasn't able to join us this evening. Um, and um, Reem's email is reemabuhayah at medac.org, and I'll uh, post that in the chat, it. Um, and that's otherwise a wrap. Um, so again, thanks so much to everyone for joining us. There's Reem's email. Um, oh, there's an R missing, so do put an R before the W. Um, thanks so much to everyone for joining us, um, and um, I'll leave you with a quote from the film nomadland
1: see you down the road.